It was worse than the funeral of an unbelieving friend. It was 1999. I was in my final year at Ridley. At that time, Roy Clements was the pastor of Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge. Over 20 years, he'd become one of the leading figures of British evangelicalism with an international reputation as an outstanding preacher and teacher. Someone people might mention in the same sentence as Peter Adam or Dick Lucas or Don Carson. A university would use one of Roy Clement's books to introduce our non-Christian friends to Jesus. Well, I remember the Sunday morning when it was announced that Roy had left both his ministry and his wife to live with another man. Most of us at St Jude's in Carlton knew Roy only by reputation or through his writing, but that morning the congregation sat in stunned, disbelieving silence. This news was gutting. His poor wife and children, his poor church. What did this mean for Roy himself? How did it happen? And more than that, what would be the wider fallout from these events? What harm would this do to the church and the cause of the gospel? Whose faith would be disturbed or discouraged or derailed as a result? How many would this cause to stumble? It was worse than the funeral of an unbelieving friend. We're continuing our chapel series, looking at the teaching blocks in Matthew's Gospel. This week we come to some passages in chapter 18. It's a chapter about how we get on together as the community of Jesus' disciples. That concerns brought into focus by two questions from the disciples in verse 1 of the chapter and in verse 21. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Our focus this morning is on verses 6 to 9, but verses 1 to 14 are a block, and I want you to notice four themes that stand out in that wider section. First, the language of little ones runs right through these verses. In the first verse of the chapter, the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Picture the donkey from Shrek jumping up and down in the back row. Pick me, pick me. (laughs) Jesus responds by telling them that a child with no significant social status and characterized by dependence on others is the very model of the humble, dependent faith that is the kingdom's entrance requirement. In fact, verse 4, in contrast with the world, greatness in the kingdom is determined by humility not by power, privilege, position or prestige. And so, verse 5, to welcome the socially insignificant because they trust in Jesus is to welcome Jesus himself. And then verses 6 to 9 warn against the danger of causing one of the little ones who believe in him to stumble. 
And verses 10 to 14 warn against despising one of them. So the context then identifies the little ones as believers who humbly depend on Jesus. There may be more to it than that. The language of little ones may reflect the situation of all believers and their status rejected by the world. More than that though, given that this chapter focuses on our relationships with one another as disciples, the language of little ones may reflect the situation of some believers who have little standing within the Christian community. The members of the community we might regard as the least. The ones we might be tempted to look down on because they're poor or plain looking or socially awkward or they don't speak the language well or they have badly behaved children or they don't have our theological credentials or our capacity to be right about every matter of dispute. And if we looked at verse 3 and took that to heart, we could never think in such stupid ways. Who could be arrogant beneath the cross? Who indeed? Well, second then, the sin of pride frames this section. The disciples' question in verse 1 there stems from seeking a status above that of other believers. And verse 10 is a warning against the corresponding sin of despising or looking down on fellow disciples. And the language of little ones that dominates the whole section opposes that kind of social and spiritual pride. If you want to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, leave your ego outside. Or third, entering or not entering the kingdom is a prominent theme. The opening verses describe the requirements of entrance into the kingdom. The next few verses warn about stumbling blocks that might prevent people from entering life. And this little section ends in verse 14 with the Father's will that none of the little ones who trust in Jesus should perish. So eternity is at stake in what Jesus teaches in this section. And that explains the drastic language of the warnings and the exhortations in verses 6 to 9. And fourth then, in the centre of the section, and our focus for the next few minutes, verses 6 to 9 highlight the issue of stumbling. Jesus' message here is don't trip. On the path of discipleship, don't trip others up and don't trip yourself up. Our first couple of verses, verses 6 and 7 there, warn about the drastic consequences of causing others to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. The language of stumbling is about tripping up and falling into sin or even falling away from faith. So Jesus' stern warning in verse 6 is against causing other believers to falter seriously on the path of discipleship. Causing others to stumble clearly can include 
you know, entrapment, deliberately enticing others off the path of discipleship, the kind of thing we might expect from the world or perhaps from false teachers. But I think it's broader than that. The implication of following this warning with verses 8 and 9 about taking great care about the things that might cause you to stumble is I think that our own stumbling may be a stumbling block for others. Well, the warning of verse 6 begins in a very disconcerting way, doesn't it? If anyone, anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, implication, anyone can be a stumbling block. And the severity of the language probably suggests that Jesus isn't talking about a one-off incident, but a lifestyle of causing others to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Well, there were two kinds of millstones. If you had a little bit of grain to grind, you might do that at home with a small millstone that could be turned by hand. If you had a lot of grain to grind, you might go to the local mill where a donkey would turn a large millstone, a big round rock that might weigh several tons to crush the grain. Jesus is referring to the large millstone. So the picture he conjures up is like being dumped in the bottom of the bay with a small truck chained to your neck. Drowning is certain. And he says it would be better to drown like that than to be a stumbling block for another believer because a quick drowning would be like a mercy killing compared with what lies in store for those who cause one of the little ones who believe in Jesus to stumble. It's a strong warning. In verse 7, Jesus pronounces a woe on the world, on the fallen world, because it is the source of stumbling blocks in a broad sense. And in that context, he says stumbling blocks are inevitable. But those through whom they come are responsible. And the mention of the world reminds us that causes for stumbling can come from outside as well as inside the Christian community. But this chapter is strongly focused on how as disciples we relate to one another. And that language of responsibility is actually echoed again in Matthew in the betrayal of Jesus, not by an outsider, but by an insider, Judas, in chapter 26. Again, disconcerting. Well, the severe warnings here reflect how precious the little ones are in God's eyes. Every one of them is precious to him. The NIV obscures it a little bit, but verses 6 and 10 and 14 all speak about one of these little ones. And did you notice the second half of verse 10? I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father. Now half of this is not a very solid base for a theology of guardian angels, okay, but Whatever you make of these words, clearly they indicate that those fellow Christians that we might be tempted to despise and look down on have a permanent standing in God's presence. Well, in the Christian community, who are you tempted to look down on? They are precious in God's eyes. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus moves from warning his disciples about the drastic consequences of causing others to stumble 
and exhorts them to take drastic measures against whatever in their own lives might cause them to stumble. Now, some of the commentators argue that because verses 6 and 7 beforehand and verses 10 to 14 afterwards are corporate, they're about the community, well, these verses must be as well. And this language of amputation is actually about excommunicating offending members of the church. I think it's more straightforward to take the metaphors as personal the way they are back in chapter 5 when Jesus uses very similar language to talk about fighting against lust. But there are some strong connections between the personal language of verses 8 and 9 and the corporate language that surrounds it. The awful metaphor of self-mutilation underlines how serious a thing it is to stumble and so how serious a thing it is to cause others to stumble. And the things that cause us to stumble may become in us stumbling blocks for other believers. And to care for one another lovingly, we must watch ourselves ruthlessly. Jesus uses violent, grotesque language. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. This horrible exhortation that sounds like a call to self-harm is actually a call to self-care because it's better to mutilate yourself and enter life than to stumble and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now looking around the room I take it you understand that Jesus is using hyperbole and doesn't want you actually to cut off your hands and feet and gouge out your eyes. But the point of the drastic language is to avoid stumbling and to avoid hell at any cost. Jesus brings out the horror of hell by speaking of being thrown into fire, eternal fire in verse 8, the fire of hell in verse 9. The language of fire may be metaphorical. If it is, it is a metaphor for something very, very bad. The awful punishment of being separated from God and everything that is good forever. Last month at the Lausanne Movement's Younger Leaders Gathering in Indonesia, one evening David Platt gave a talk about uh, reaching the unreached, a fairly classic kind of David Platt talk, and he spoke with tears about hell and about the prospect of people being cut off from God forever with no opportunity to respond to the gospel. Well, not surprisingly, his talk generated a lot of chatter in the online discussion forum afterwards. And it struck me how many of the comments were reactionary. Now, it's certainly possible to talk about hell in ways that are disproportionate, manipulative or, or, or otherwise you know, unhelpful. On the whole, however, it seems to me that we are more prone to another danger when it comes to hell. And that is not talking about it at all. Jesus did not fall into that trap. Well, what does it look like to deal drastically with stumbling blocks in your own life and to avoid hell at any cost. Let me give one example. I spent time with a senior Christian leader recently who confessed that he has a serious struggle with pornography. He finds that he's most at danger late at night 
on the computer. Well, this brother's married, so what he's done is he's removed the internet browser from his computer and he's given his wife the administrator account. Only she knows the password. Right? So he can't, in the wee hours of the night, cave into temptation and reinstall the browser and look at some porn even if he wants to. Does that sound a bit drastic? If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Because of your theological studies, you're going to find yourselves in many positions of Christian leadership, whether in your local churches or in other contexts. In fact, many of you are already exercising Christian leadership of some kind. As a result, you are not less but more vulnerable to being enticed by the question of verse 1, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you are more in need of the warning of verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. And the more prominent your leadership, the more danger that your failings may cause others to stumble. So please heed the warning of verse 6. I've been a Christian for 25 years. For the record, I'd like to clarify that that's way more than half my lifetime, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> in that time, I've been a member of six local churches across three different denominations in Melbourne and in Mexico City. I think the technical ecclesiological term for that is mongrel. <laughs> now, just in the context of that personal experience, I've seen three senior pastors commit adultery. Serial adultery in at least one case. Two of them left the ministry and their wives. One of them left the faith. I've seen another senior pastor implicated in financial scandal. He stubbornly clung to his position, but half the church and most of the leaders left. I've seen three churches rocked by conflict among the senior leaders. All of the churches were profoundly affected by these events. Two of them closed down as a result. And I don't know how to begin to measure the impact on individual believers. For the sake of your fellow Christians, especially those you lead, and for your own sake, watch your life and doctrine closely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, weed out the sin of pride from our hearts. Pull it up by the roots and in its place plant humble trust in Jesus. And let that humility bear fruit in our relationships with one another. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus who was despised and rejected, held in low esteem, in order that he might take up our pain and bear our suffering, be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, bearing the punishment that brought our peace and the wounds that brought our healing. He was despised so that none of those you've given him might perish. Help us not to despise any of the little ones who believe in him, our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and keep us from causing any of them to stumble in the faith. Instead, we pray that we might encourage fellow believers to walk the path of discipleship with steady, sure-footed trust in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Charlie, for ministering to us with that incredible sermon. Uh, let's turn to page one, two, three.